Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised... Press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. Snuff out those smoke dreams, Kevin, so I can ask you a question. What did we watch last night? 
we watched After the Thin Man, the 1936 sequel to the original Thin Man movie, starring William Powell and Myrna Loy, directed by W.S. Van Dyke and written by Goodrich and Hackett, and based on original characters created by Dashiell Hammett. Also starring Jimmy Stewart, it's one of those movies where you're always like, you watch it multiple times as I have. You always forget Jimmy Stewart's and then you see James Stewart and you're like, it's Jimmy Stewart. He's in this too. And everybody loves Jimmy Stewart. Everybody loves him. Oh, what a movie. So why did we pick out this Thin Man to watch first for the Mystery to Me podcast rather than the original Thin Man? Uh, this is personally my favorite of the Thin Man movies because it's still early enough in the game that the characters are fresh and original and it feels like we're still finding out things about them. In the first Thin Man movie, the creators of the film thought that the emphasis should be on the mystery. and They didn't realize that the real charm and appeal was Nick and Nora. So as a result, if you watch that movie, you're like, I think it takes 15 or 20 minutes before Nick and Nora even make an yeah, appearance. Yeah, that's what people want. I mean, And in this one... We get Nick and Nora right from the start, and we just hang out with them for like 15, 20, 30 minutes, even before the mystery even starts. For people who haven't seen The Thin Man, um, the appeal of the series is that it stars this uh, couple, Nick and Nora Charles. He's a former detective. She's uh, comes from money as an heiress, and um, you know they, they kind of basically on the sides sort of like solve mysteries in between being sort of rich and cool. And like, it feels like watching a real couple who's like it very much in love flirt and have fun on screen. There's a lot of joy to it. And it's a really fun movie experience because I think everybody who watches movies or, you know, consumes fiction knows that so many romantic relationships are portrayed as sort of like being dramatic or like there's fighting and there's blah, 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 or they're just kind of bland. And this is neither dramatic nor bland. They just, they love each other. They love solving mysteries and we're all in for a great time. It feels like watching your like fun friends do stuff basically. They just love spending time with each other. They enjoy one another's company. Crazy about each other. They're nuts for each other. And like, so even when the movies take like, do, do like dumb shit or like take weird turns, you know, you just, it's still fun. It's still really fun. So these are some of my favorite movies ever. The only time it's not fun is if the characters are, for plot reasons, get separated or the scenes where you focus on the mystery and you're introducing the suspects and stuff because no really no one cares you just want to hang out with nick and nora no one cares the mysteries aren't particularly well written or interesting you want to hang out with nick and nora that's why we're here loy and powell have incredible chemistry famously famous chemistry between them and it's just a joy to watch um okay so let's let's start from the beginning <laughs> Um, I mean, you you actually kicked off things when we were watching this the 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 uh, intro where they're you know it's an old movie so they put all the you know credits first and they're giving the old razzle dazzle with the big band jazz and all that stuff and you're like I'm excited to visit with my friends Nick and Nora. I love these characters; they're fun to hang out with. But what, uh, as I recall, you got more excited when some other credits appeared on the screen. Yes. Um, they pulled up credits for Mr. and Mrs. Asta. That is uh, the, the, the dogs owned by Nick and Nora Charles. 
Asta is a wire fox terrier dog. And actually, the movies were so popular in the 1930s that there was a huge boom in breeding these kinds of dogs because everyone wanted an Asta dog. And this dog is really quite a character in the films. He's he's very cute, but he's also kind of sassy. He has his own personality. He very much feels like a dog, you know, like like he because he's he's smart, but he's also kind of like puppyish sometimes. So he's a great he's a great addition, and I just loved how they had this whole whole title card for the dogs in this movie. The dog and the dog's wife. We're gonna meet. <laughs> we're going to meet Mrs. Asta in this movie. We might find out more about her than we'd like to know. <laughs> gets really fucking dramatic <laughs> the dogs it's shocking it's very shocking just buckle up um but yeah the movie uh, and then the movie gets started the, the movie actually takes place it actually starts within days after the first movie ended the first movie ended with nick wrapping up a case in new york and then he and nora get on a train to go back home to San Francisco. And this movie begins as the train is arriving in San Francisco. Yeah, and the happy couple sort of bumbling around. Nick's drinking. Asta's sitting on Nora's hat in the hat box. You know, they're just trying to get packed up. Uh, but already things are things are a bit different uh, once they get off the train because the press swarms in. <sighs> the press. Fucking reporters, man. <laughs> <laughs> The press uh, is obsessed with the Nick and Nora story, the thin man. Um, and they're like, you know, tell us about what next case you're going to do. When are you going to do when you get to San Francisco, blah, blah, blah. And they're kind of just like, you know, we're we're not really in the market here. We're just kind of exhausted from chilling in uh, New York City for the holidays and solving a case. So we just want to go home. So naturally, you know, another mystery is going to be afoot soon. Oh, of course. But also I felt like, you know, if people, like, if, like, if there was ever, like, people doing stuff like this, that would become famous, I think. You know? They'd be getting their own, like, ID channel show or something. <laughs> <laughs> they'd be, they'd be getting media deals, you know. I mean, people love this crap, you know? They'd be huge stars. It's like how we've talked about, you know, when we're watching Scooby-Doo, like, th- those kids would become famous. They'd be, like, TikTok stars. People will be like, oh, shit, they're coming in to, like, figure out what's going on in this town. People will be swarming them. But anyway, the press is on this. <laughs> and and the- So you think the Scooby gang would be, like, international celebrities if they existed in real life? Yeah, they, yeah, obviously. They solve all these fucking crimes. People will be going to them, begging them to solve their cold cases. Like, please, my husband went missing 20 years ago. Like, tell me what happened. And they'd be like, okay. like. So do you imagine they'd be, like, savvy? Like, they have their own, like, podcast? Naturally. The Scooby Squad? <laughs> Mystery Inc. <laughs> get, get, get your shit together, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and one, one, one facet, one, one mainstay of the Thin Man franchise is because Nick used to be a detective, he is very much in touch with the underworld, very much in touch with some of these sinister, amusing characters who always are uh, accosting him and his new fancy wife. Including, but not limited to, Fingers, who's a pickpocket who just shows up and is fucking around. And he steals uh, Nora's purse. And Nora doesn't realize it, and Nick doesn't embarrass Fingers. He says, hey, Fingers. And Fingers says, oh, it's Nick Charles. And uh, Nick says, you know, this is my wife. 
And he says, oh, and then so Fingers very discreetly returns the purse. And, of course, all these different weirdos are, like, yelling at the Charleses as they're driving in their big old-timey 1930s car. And they're like, hey, you're going to see me fight in the ring tomorrow? Like, I'm going to give the guy a triple-decker punch sandwich or whatever. And then, like, then like finally there's, like, one respectable couple who, like, say hi to them. And they're like, oh, hi, Nora. It's great to see you in town again. And Nora's like, you wouldn't know them, Nick. <laughs> like, <laughs> these people never went to jail. <laughs> They're respectable. They're respectable. Uh, and I think it might be worth noting that in the scene that you just referred to, where there were a group of uh, happy-go-lucky fellows gathered around the car, and one of them is saying, I'm going to fight tomorrow. Uh, you got to come watch me. One of the people in that group is a person of color. And it was relatively rare to see a person of color in a mainstream film in the 1930s if they weren't a broad stereotype. And one thing Myrna Loy tried to do, she tried to use her power and her influence to get people of color, if not in a starring role, which may have been too much to ask for at that time, at least get them in the background. And I, I know there's some movies where she would just have a person of color in the background walking around carrying a briefcase or doing something professional. And so I don't know if, if she's the one that got this person of color in the background in this scene, but it was kind of nice to see. Yeah, Myrna Loy was a total badass in real life. So we stand. So after saying that little nice thing, something really wild is about to happen. I see in your notes here, you have all in caps, this gets batshit. This gets batshit, or should we say dog shit? <laughs> and you also note, holy fuck. Guys, I don't even know how to explain this to you. This Asta at this point is a beloved figure. Okay, but he's a beloved figure. He kicked off this wire fox terrier craze. And, and I just imagine what audiences, how audiences reacted to this whole scene. So Asta gets back, Asta's all cute and happy, and he runs to the backyard of the Charles's <laughs> home. I'm just going to give you a whole recounting of the scene. He runs to the backyard of the Charles's home, and uh, you, you see like kind of a little like big, big enclosure, and his wife comes out of their house, basically. <laughs> and then all of his children, his puppies, come out of the house. And he's, I, my, <laughs> I've seen dogs do this, he's... He's jumping up. He's so happy. He's like jumping feet in the air to say hello to his puppies and his wife. And then one of the puppies comes out and it's clearly half Scottish terrier. He's not a wire fox at all. <laughs> has to look shocked. And then you see... And you see a Scottish terrier come out of nowhere and start running... <laughs> chases after him and this kind of terrier runs under like a hole in the shrubbery and gets away and asks this barking at him as the came and found that he's been cucked by his wife <laughs> who's having an affair with a scottish terrier and actually bore a puppy by him <laughs> what the fuck is God, and also this is not the last scene regarding this whole situation. So just 
be note be noted, but it's very silly. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm personally amused by it because I just I would see I would watch Asta like you know go to the dog park and act bratty. Like I don't I love that dog so much. So I I I don't mind the weird domestic drama here. It's pretty bizarre though. Is there a racial element there? Because Asta is white. He's a white dog. And the Scottish Terrier is a black dog. And I think there is always, uh, back then, there was a big fear about the sexual potency of the black male. Maybe rephrase that. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we just cut this part out? <laughs> well, I mean, I think there might be a racist element. Um, but, I mean, I, also, I mean, it is very, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to make excuses for it. My thinking was, oh, it's a Scottish, like, it's a Scottish Terrier, so I'm thinking. Was there a bagpipe cue? I don't know. I don't really remember. Like, do they use bag? I, I might be just making that up in my head. Could it be like a Roosevelt reference? Because Roosevelt had a Scottish Terrier, right? I I don't know. Maybe that was another popular dog at the time. Uh, but maybe it's a racist thing. I think it, jury's out. If it's a racist thing, then I apologize. Uh, for being a white privileged lady who just was like dogs, <laughs> fucking. <laughs> Why do, why do we want to see Asta cucked? I don't want to see it, but it's really like, it's it's really it makes me uncomfortable. So I either got to laugh or I got to cry. <laughs> what do you think of it? It's just Am I a sicko for laughing at this scene? It's just so weird. It's, like, it's so bizarre. Why is it there? I don't know. I don't know who said, all right, we're going to introduce Mrs. Asta. All right. Great idea, boss. Great idea. And I, uh, she likes to fuck around. <laughs> She's a bit of a tart. What? <laughs> like who? Uh, I don't know. I guess I, I don't really enjoy the scene, but I more of enjoy the fact that it exists. And it, it is so fucking weird. I think that that's what I enjoy. I don't like to see Asta sad. Of course, Asta's sad because his wife cheated, cheated on him. <laughs> Asta is genuinely sad. Asta starts howling after this. <laughs> It's awful, but it's like, why? <laughs> I just wish I could have been a fly on the wall for this whole, this whole, uh, whoever pitched this. <laughs> All right. So maybe we can have Asta like do some tricks in the backyard or like jump around or maybe chase the mailman. No. <laughs> Asta comes back and gets his heart shattered. What? Why? What happened? <laughs> Scottish Terrier fucked his wife. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you think maybe one of the producers had his wife cheat on him with a Scotsman? I actually think that Asta, the uh, Skippy, who was the dog actor who played Asta, just wanted to chew on some meteor material here. <laughs> he wanted to win a dog Oscar for his portrayal of a heartbroken husband driven to desperation by his wife's <laughs> antics. Poor Asta. He's saying your notes. This movie understands my need for silly and inappropriate domestic drama in the Asta household. <laughs> yep. I mean, I'll, I'll say this now. I was going to say it later, but the film, I'm almost like all the stupid drama and bullshit that could exist in the Nick and Nora relationship, which might exist in like any other movie, get completely poured into the relationship between their dog and his wife. 
<laughs> Which you know what? Fine. If it has to exist somewhere, give it to Asta. Like it's like Asta's like like sucking in all like the bad relationship stuff. <laughs> That's a good point. It's it's just so it's so fucking weird. It's been so long since I've seen the other movies in the series. Uh, do you remember if they continue this Asta's wife is cheating on him storyline in the other pictures? I don't remember. I remember this. I remember seeing this as a kid and being like, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> I don't remember the, if they continue that. I think Mrs. Asta's in some of the other ones, but maybe I'm just making that. I, I don't. I don't know. Maybe they got a divorce. The next one, she just shows up to ask him for child support. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Asta. Let's get back to Nick and Nora. What are they doing during all this? Well, they're, of course, really excited to just sleep for five years because I guess, you know, they, uh, they're they tired from coming in from New York. And, of course, you know, they open the door and... You know, it's it's a big surprise party for them. Only the people who let them in don't realize that they're actually the homeowners. And they're like, oh, they, you know, Nick and Nora Charles are coming. And they're like, oh, do you know him? And then he's like, no, I don't, no, I don't know those guys. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, guy tells them to make themselves at home in their own home. And so they sort of like start just dancing around to like kind of get a gauge of what's going on. People are doing all these crazy batshit old timey dances. And like someone's like some woman is like warbling like trouble, trouble or like some weird <laughs> shit. Because that was what people did for entertainment back then. And um, it is, uh, it is uh, you know, the antics and, you know, the one thing that characterizes the Thin Men series is like, you know, these people party a lot. You know, they're they're partiers. You know, it's post-prohibition. Uh, it's it's set, like, right after prohibition, so everyone's just getting shit-faced. There's a lot of drinking in these pictures. A lot of drinking in these pictures. <laughs> I mean, as a as a recovering alcoholic, it's funny because when you, when you like, you know, my, my old view of drinking was like, yeah, it's fun. Like, this is the kind of lifestyle I want. But, like, this is not, you know, this is what, this is, like, your what your brain thinks, oh, it's going to be like this, but then it's really more like down in the gutter. <laughs> That's how it makes you feel. But, you know, it's it certainly... You, you think you're gonna if you drink, you'll be yeah. like Nick and Nora Charles, you really be like Mr. and Mrs. Asta. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Your life just goes to shit. But it, it's it's funny that everyone's just like, you know, everybody's, everybody's just sloshed constantly in these <laughs> And they're always partying at people's houses and just having a grand old time. But there's also a lot of murder, so maybe those two things are not <laughs> unconnected. <laughs> uh, Nick and Nora finally find their way into their kitchen. They talk to their all Irish house staff, and they learn Racist. that no. they learn that uh, Nora's aunt Catherine has been calling for them. Uh, her aunt, her cousin Selma, also wants them to uh, come over. Nora agrees, even though Nick doesn't want to go. And to cope with this family drama, they drink even more. Meanwhile, Asta makes his way into the kitchen. And this is what you were talking about. He's so sad. He's so depressed. He's so heartbroken. He's howling. He's howling. And they're like, oh, geez, what happened to him? <laughs> Desperate dog wives <laughs> of San Francisco. And so... um, one thing you find out in this is that Aunt Catherine and Nora's snobby family don't like Nick. Uh, in the short story uh, that this is based on, Nick is actually uh, of Greek descent and um, is a little bit 
older than Nora, so you know these guys are blue bloods. They have a problem with that, and uh, they made it known. So clearly, something is afoot if they're asking Nick and Nora to show up, given that uh, um, that snobbery. And you have all sorts of um, little bizarre comments that sort of reflect how Nora's family views Nick. Um, <laughs> when when the, the couple show up, you know, they're being introduced. It's all these el- very elderly people. And you have old women saying things like, poor Nora, what a, that, that poor child. And like, oh, Nora, she's very brave. Nick is doing to her. And Nora is like deliriously happy with Nick. Yeah. Yeah. Like the chemistry. Oh, it's it's very funny though. It's just very a good, pretty accurate portrayal of a dysfunctional family. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. It's pretty interesting. My heart bleeds for that child. It's like, well, you know what? Well, she didn't have to suffer through your un- presumably unhappy marriage that started back in the Civil War or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Back when it was all arranged stuff. Poor Nora is so brave. <laughs> I love that. Just toxic simpering. So spot on. Um, but there's one person who's surprisingly absent from this little New Year's Eve get together of the olds. And that's Selma's husband, Robert. Who's Selma? Uh, Selma is uh, Nora's cousin, and we're told that Nick and Nora like her, even though she's a very bad actress. She just is the worst actress in this whole thing. Oh, Anya, what do you mean? Oh, I couldn't have killed him. Like, she's a weird, low-talking voice. It's just a... She's a mess. (laughs) So, of course, Anne Catherine divvies everyone up. And, uh, you know, all the girls go to the parlor, all the men go to, like, drawing room or something. And there's a funny scene where Nick is the only person still awake. All the old men are asleep, and he's pretending to have conversations with all of them. <laughs> Which, like, we've all been to that party. Yeah. <laughs> um, and But finally, Aunt Catherine sort of, like, cuts the bullshit. You know, she's just, like, this awful narcissistic lady who's controlling everybody and calling all the shots and just kind of, you know, trying to basically... Cover up the fact that Selma's husband is A, terrible, and B, missing. Um, Even at the cost of Selma's, like, mental health and such. She wants Nick to use his detective prowess to track Robert down. And do it quietly. Yeah. Nick's not a cop anymore. So she does not want this getting into the hands of the police. She just wants it kept within the family, which is always a bad sign. But then... We get a very special cameo. Well, I mean, it's I guess he's more of a featured player. More like one of the leads. An old friend, <laughs> an old friend shows up either way. Jimmy Stewart, beloved American actor, Jimmy Stewart. We love him. I love Jimmy Stewart. I do. You're a big Jimmy Stewart fan. Yeah, I'm always like, ah, it's, he's so likable. I like him a lot. Do you like him? I thought he was very funny on the Jack Benny show. <laughs> Because you're a hundred years old. In the Jack Benny TV show, he he played uh, Jack's exasperated neighbor. Right? Well, in this, he's a little bit 
he's a little bit more than exasperated because he actually used to date Selma until Robert stole her away. Um, so now Jimmy Stewart is actually sort of seems to be making a move because he sort of shows up and is talking to Selma. And then he reveals that Robert actually said that if, you know, he was paid 20K. 25K. 25K by Jimmy Stewart that he'd go away forever and he's considering giving him that money and Nick Nora are like, oh, geez, okay. Yikes. <laughs> and, of course, nowadays, if you give someone 25K, that's like uh, uh, starvation wages for a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but back then, 1936, $25,000 was the equivalent of $470,000. Holy shit. So Jimmy Stewart must have been doing pretty well if he had that kind of money lying around. Yeah, I hope somebody gives me that much money to go away. <laughs> I'm gone. Anya. Not from you. I just I meant like in le- like if somebody I met somebody and they're like, you know what, you're so annoying. Here's a here's a check. Never come here again. I'll be like, oh, okay. So you're not you you wouldn't take money to disappear from Kevin. No. They'd have to. They yeah. No. Okay. Not even for they'd have to they'd have to put locks on the window to get you know keep me from coming back and getting in there. <laughs> Nothing. I'd, I'd be busting down the door. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing can keep me away. But you're talking about more like if they don't want you to come back in a particular McDonald's. Yeah, I mean we don't have to bring up a real world event, but yes. <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't want to get into that. <laughs> it's very embarrassing. <laughs> Anyway, I have come into some money, but <laughs> we're not allowed to talk about it. Um, but uh, anyway, so it's New Year's Eve, as we mentioned. So they uh, they bust out of that shitty old person party where everyone's kind of rude and boring, and so the Charleses instead go to a hopping uh, Chinese restaurant, um, uh, where something. Kind of odd is happening. There's a, there's a floor show. There's it's a 1930s movie, so you know there's probably going to be some big dumb song and dance. And uh, we actually played a clip of one of the songs sung during this floor show at one point. But the, let's talk about the the, the first number we mm. see is like a happening. We played the ballad, yeah, the thoughtful ballad that will break your heart. Thoughtful in quotation marks. The first one is a really happening number where a woman wearing a tutu with musical notes on it is hopping around and behind her there are women who are wearing hats that look like drums and they are throwing like trumpets at randomly at people in the audience because they're doing a song called Blow That Horn. So they're throwing trumpets at people who are trying to eat. Why are you describing your fantasy to the, to me right now? <laughs> I have a trumpet thrown at me while I'm eating. What man doesn't want that? It's a blow me, baby. Oh, God, I've got a flute in my eye. I don't understand what kind of restaurant this is where you're paying and paying customers are sitting down, you know, quietly eating their low main. On New Year's Eve, and suddenly they got a fucking cornet busting their nose. I mean, like, it's, it's ridiculous. And also, I want one of those drum hats, because that just looks crazy. 
And how much would it cost to have like a big bag of trumpets that you throw out every every night? Yeah, because people are going to take the trumpets. Yeah. As they should. It's been thrown at them as a projectile. And who would want to go? Who would want that? Who would want to say, oh, let's go to the place where we'd be throwing people throw trumpets at us. Who wants that? T-shirt cannons. I'm all for it. If a T-shirt hits you in the face, it's soft. (laughs) What about a trumpet cannon? Trumpet, saxophone, little flute, not a good idea. Sousaphone, tuba? Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately, the tuba went to that elderly couple in table 10 and they didn't make it. (laughs) I mean, at the end of the night, there'd just be bodies and like moaning injured people all over the floor. It would be a disaster. Like that scene in Gone with the Wind after the Battle of Atlanta. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a. Is this what restaurants were like in the 30s? Yeah. If you went to buy a burger, there'd be someone doing a number? I think so. Yeah, McDonald's. (laughs) Some big tap routine. You're you're, you're not allowed to talk about McDonald's. Oh, that's fair. (laughs) Wendy's, then. Um, It's one of those things, like, yeah, entertainment was so... People just... People paid to see this. This was something that people paid to see. You know, I'm sure the stuff nowadays that people in a hundred years will be like, "What the fuck was that?" But I just so can't let 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 us what have you ever been to a restaurant like that, or have you ever been to seen like a floor show that you paid to see that you said like, "What have I done?" My wonderful friend Mylise and I a few years ago went to Orlando, and yada yada yada. Without without going into too much of the context, we ended up going to this place that was sort of like a a kind of a club place it was like also a restaurant but the big feature that i remember was that it had a michael jackson impersonator performing while we were there and i remember just thinking like like am i dead like what happened like did i go to hell <laughs> like what is this <laughs> this is a very it was it was it was bizarre i was like who is this who wants to see this that was what i was thinking the whole time but i was also kind of amused by it because i I like being in weird, tacky places, so I wasn't horrified, but I also was like, I don't know who this is really for. Do you regret it? No, it was funny. I'll bite weird, but it was funny. Uh, my closest thing was uh, I, w- I was visiting another state. I won't even mention the state, but I persuaded my sister and my parents to go, as well as a lady friend, and, you know, that relationship didn't work out, which I'm sure is completely coincidental. <laughs> had nothing to do with this. I said, what we got to do is we got to go to this place with singing waiters. Where there was like maybe a half a dozen or ten waiters. And in between serving you food, they would go up on a stage and awkwardly and badly sing numbers from Broadway songs and they would not sing them that well. And so a person would go up on stage, sing badly. You feel very sorry for him. You'd be cringing. And then like five minutes later, they'd be bringing you a plate of shrimp and you know, they're looking at you with like hope in their eyes. Oh, what'd you think, sir? Did how do you think I did? So I deeply regret going to that. And my, my family, I was pretty upset that I'd suggested it. it was not something I would repeat. That whole thing ruined, those singing waiters ruined your life. (laughs) I'm not the same man. 
You stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> I once, when I was a child, went to a restaurant called O'Malley's, which was a quite a place in Long Island. But anyways, I remember there was a guy there once. They didn't always have live entertainment, but there was entertainment being used very loosely here. But they had a, a middle-aged man, kind of a small man, a sad-looking man with sad eyes. And he stood right near our table and played on a little piano and sang Memory from Cats, among other songs. Kind of sad ballads. And I, no one was clapping for him. I wanted to cry. I think I did cry. I was crying. I was crying in public. I was like, I don't know, I was like 14 or something. And I, I get really bad secondhand embarrassment. So, like, I was just in hell. I was just in hell. I was like this... Why? What's going on? What ha- <laughs> what happened to this man that he's here at fucking O'Malley singing memory from cats? What's going on? <laughs> I just felt so sad. I felt so sad for him that I started crying and it was... well, that's that's terrible. Let's go out at least on a partial win. I don't know how if this counts, but when I was a child, a place I loved going to was an ice cream parlor. I think they also served uh, like grilled cheese and stuff called Farrell's. And this was a place where if anyone, first of all, it, it was had a 1920s theme. Ooh, I like that. You're, 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 you're in, you've already, this is already a win. I could stop now and be hailed <laughs> as a hero. <laughs> if anyone in the establishment was having a birthday, Everybody would gather. All the employees would gather with their straw boaters and their little handlebar mustaches and their kasoos and their slide whistles. And they do a very energetic, sprightly rendition of Happy Birthday. And I, as a kid, I thought that was the greatest thing ever. Aww. Seeing all these people dance and hop around. <laughs> I like that. That is a good win. That's a win. That's a win. So now... Now let's go back to the we, we can wash. Yeah, we can wash our hands of uh, live singing entertainment and how awkward it can be. We can go back to this awkward movie that we both love. I would say, okay, so, so, so much, as, as this tutu girl, the focus is on the main singer, not the women in drum hats, but the woman without the drum hat. And this guy with a mustache is watching her intently. Later you discover that this is, in fact, the errant Robert who is not where he's supposed to be. He's fooling around on his wife, Selma. He's out on the town watching two, two girls and getting hit in the face with trumpets. <laughs> Isn't that what most people do when they're out on a spree? Yeah, honestly. I mean, that's where I found you when I, when you uh, stepped out. When I tried to escape. <laughs> Somebody had paid me off. When you, uh, when you smashed through the, the window and ran out into the night. <laughs> Watching two two girls and dodging trumpets. Yeah, picking up little little kazoos and little, <laughs> little saxophones. So, it's one of those movies that kind of suffers though from too many mustaches. That's what I call it. <laughs> so many of these old movies have too many white guys with mustaches running around, and I can't tell anybody apart. <laughs> so, so one mustache guy is at the table. That's Robert. And then Dancer, who is the one of the co-manager of the co-owner of the uh, Chinese restaurant, uh, he is watching the two two girl as well from the wings. 
and uh, they, you know, he kind of grabs her as she's walking by. And, and you wondered, like, why is he watching her so intently? Is it because she's such a talented dancer? Is it because she's, like, really, like, sexy, I guess? Do you, do you have any idea? Because she's not really a good dancer. Uh, she's not really uh, all that sexy. Her haircut looks like like Peter Pan or something. She looks weird. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm sure she's a nice lady in real life. I, I mean, I'm sure she's dead now, but... She she just I, the dancing and the singing are so awkward in this that I would be mesmerized too. <laughs> uh, she's played by the way by uh, Penny Singleton, who went on to play Blondie in the Blondie and Dagwood <laughs> series of films. Of course, everyone's always talking about those. <laughs> Penny Singleton, and Arthur Lake, everybody remembers those pictures. <sighs> they're yeah, they're really legend. <laughs> Anyways. Some guy who seemingly is her brother comes in and hits this tutu girl. And then the dancer, the one of the mustache guys, throws him down the stairs just as Nick and Nora are walking in to get some Chinese food. Yeah, it's, it's confused. Let's call the uh, the girl who was dancing. Let's give her a name because it's confusing. Polly? Okay, let's call her Polly, which is her character's name, because it's confusing when we talk about the girl who is dancing and then talk about a, a person named Dancer. Oh, my God. Yeah, this... So there's actually a person, the owner of the club is named Dancer. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he never does a number, unfortunately. Yeah, why name him Dancer? Just getting our hopes up. <laughs> so uh, Dancer lets the Charleses into the restaurant and is like kind of like, you know, oh, you know, like very much accommodating towards them. And... um. He also introduces them to his uh, co-owner, who is a, a Chinese man, um, you know, and he's kind of unfortunately portrayed as like, you know, having a very strong accent and, you know, being kind of inscrutable, like kind of a stereotypical character. But I knowing what you said about Myrna Loy's influence on some of these films, it feels like this could have been much worse and <laughs> may have been much worse until like, you know. Maybe a rewrite or something. Yeah, and, and ultimately, as uh, not too much of a spoiler, uh, ultimately, he turns out to be a bit of a hero. Yeah, he's a good guy, and he's not... It, it doesn't go in a really especially offensive direction. I, th- I think the most offensive thing is just the level of accent and kind of, you know, kind of touting him as like, oh, maybe he's bad, and like you're like, what did he do other than be Chinese and be in the movie? <laughs> and also, also I, th- I think it's nice that he's not like uh, a henchman. He's not like Dancer's assistant. He's a co-owner of the club. Agreed. He's a successful man. Yes. So anyways, Nora locks in on Robert. Again, that's Selma's errant husband. And Nick and Nora go over basically to kind of confront him and be like, you know, you need to give your wife a call. She's really worried about you. And he's a total asshole, and he's all like, nah, I'm just having fun, da-da-da. And then Nick and Nora get their own table, but it's soon populated by some un- <laughs> uninvited guests. Yeah, some guy comes along and says, oh, my buddy who just got paroled is out. It, it, it would help him if he could hang out with some respectable people like yourself. And so Nick says, okay, that's fine. And so then all these sketchy characters come to hang out with them. And meanwhile... I think one of your favorite scenes occurs. So Polly, as we mentioned, the tutu girl, the singer, comes out to do another number. And she's in this big poofy dress now. And this was something we referenced in the opening of our show. 
she starts singing a song called Smoke Dreams. It's all about sitting around a campfire. Give a listen. <laughs> and it's it's like she's singing in a way and the way that she's pronouncing things is just so odd. And I know that's how they sang back then, but it just it made me crack up because she's singing like smoke dreams. Like, like everything is like being stretched out. Smoke dreams. We watched all alone by the campfire. (laughs) We watched this movie last night, and periodically during the course of today, you have spontaneously broken out into renditions of smoke dreams. I just want to work at the club, be one of these, get all the attention. The rowdy guys love her; they're going nuts. This is, so this is your dream job, what this, Polly does. This is what this is what is considered sexy back then. Some woman warbling in front of a large group of drunk people at a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> so you want to wear a musical dress, musical note dress, and hop around and uh, sing uh, horrible songs to the <laughs> <laughs> amusement of paying customers. That's your dream. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Don't you? No. Give it a try. Sing out smoke dreams. I'm not going to do it. No, you just, can't just make do me. the first. Just sing Just sing the word smoke dreams. Smoke dreams. <laughs> Got to really like stretch out. Like what? Uh, maybe I'm going to sing it one more time. Get it out of my system. But then I want you to tell us who invented actual modern decent singing. Smoke dreams. <laughs> Modern day decent singing was largely invented by uh, Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby back in the 1920s. And what 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 do they do differently that makes that what what we hear now sound different from shit like this? Uh, they sang in a more naturalistic, conversational type of of style, similar to how people close out people might talk. So I wouldn't really say smoke dreams. Yeah, if you listen to Louis Armstrong or Bing Crosby, they have more of a patter type. It just feels more modern. Mm-hmm. And this feels just weird. <laughs> this So much of this, this movie was made in 1936. And so much of it uh, could be shot today. The, the, you know, the relationship between Nick and Nora, a lot of that stuff feels very modern. But this, this, this musical, this singing really feels like much even older than 1936 it feels like 100 years ago so the criminals who are at the parole party are huge fans of polly and they're rioting and and also you know given you know jokes with nick and nora while this is going on but meanwhile also at this point everybody starts leaving wherever they're at and you can tell Everybody's leaving so they can be a, a potential suspect. Like Dancer leaves the club. His partner leaves the club. Uh, Selma leaves her house. Everybody's leaving. Everybody's leaving the club. <laughs> They're evacuating the club. And and at this point, um, Robert is inevitably gunned down in the street. He's gunned down right after Jimmy Stewart pays him the twenty five grand. And then Selma is, of course, walking right up to him as he's gunned down. 
And as she sort of reacts to this, you hear the clock chiming midnight and you hear all the celebrations sort of muted in the background and the San Francisco fog rolls in. And then Jimmy Stewart comes up and is kind of like, oh, my God, what did you do? And I thought that was kind of a spooky, fun scene. I like that. She's a terrible actress, but I like that scene. Then he takes her gun. He wants to protect her. He says, go home. And he takes her gun and he throws it into the river. Meanwhile, we cut back to the important shit, which is Nick and Nora's relationship. And I just love that these two love each other. I love it. And? And they also totally fuck. (laughs) They behave like people who have sex with each other and love each other. And I think that's really cool. They really have quite, I mean, I mean, that's the thing that's said about these movies again and again, but they really do have pretty amazing chemistry. And uh, I think it's just, when you watch movies, you watch movies about people who almost seem like they hate each other who are supposed to be in relationships. So it's really refreshing to see a movie about people who genuinely love each other and are love to do things together. It's like an actual, it's actual relationship goals. They're a great couple. Um, so at this point, Nick sort of somehow, I forget how, but re- realizes that something is afoot. And he goes into uh, the restaurant's offices <laughs> and starts, like, calling the police and sort of setting the plot in motion, I guess. Yeah, we learn that Robert's dead. We get into the mystery. And now we meet Lieutenant Abrams. Love tell, him. Tell me about him. Love this character. He's just a mood. He's coming in. He's throwing up his hands. He's yelling at people. He doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> hey, get out of there, sister. I don't. You're on the suspect list, too. He's just... He seems so exasperated, so fed up with all this shit. And, you know, he's not confident, though. He's not coming in and saying, you must have done it. He's just, like, literally throwing around ideas. (laughs) He's just stirring things up to see what happens. We've all been there. For some reason, the guy who played the bad guy in Sherlock Holmes Goes to Washington shows up, and he's, like, the creepy shrink uh, who's, like, wearing big, thick bottle coke bottle glasses so maybe he did it there's so many people in this movie who only exist because you, they want to pad out the cast to keep you guessing on who did it and and then uh some shyster shows hey up. wait a minute kevin didn't like it when they used lawyer slurs to describe this uh it's an offensive attorney. term is it yeah is it is it like it people call reporters hacks is it like that? Yeah, it's like that. Yeah. Okay. Kevin says no slurs. <laughs> no slurs allowed. No Reporters slurs. and attorneys are the noblest, grandest creatures on God's green earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you say so, dear. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, Abrams is walking around yelling, nobody has anything. Nobody knows anything. I, I feel like... I feel like, I don't know, I feel like I, I feel like Abrams, I feel like I'm usually have like a pretty placid, I often have like sort of a placid expression, but like inside, that's what my anxiety is doing inside. <laughs> Just like freaking out. So inside, you're Lieutenant Abrams. Yeah, inside I'm Lieutenant Abrams. <laughs> Sometimes he busts out and comes out and I'm freaked out and freaking out or yelling at people, but I think, you know, normally that's. Just happening inside my head. <laughs> but it does come out sometimes. I, I've met Lieutenant Anya. Yeah, you've met Lieutenant Anya. 
Yeah, I mean, you, uh, we live together and we're in a relationship, so you're going to see that more than most people. Yes. But other people, it's just like, it's creeping below the surface. And of course, the people at McDonald's saw it. <laughs> Don't want to talk about that. I'm though. sorry. Um, so, of course, someone sh- shuts off the lights in this office. And there's a big to-do, a big struggle. One of the cops are shooting. That's a great idea in the dark. <laughs> um, Nick f- picks up the phone and is having a humorous conversation with, uh, I guess, the the uh, the uh, police station being like, I can't hear you. It's too crazy in here. And some dad jokes. <laughs> and everyone get basically gets arrested at this point. That's all you need to know. Um, but Nora has also been arrested because she was sleuthing around on her own with uh, Jimmy Stewart. And Nick has to go bail her out. Uh, and, of course, he's making fun of her and acting like he's not going to do it. Um, and then uh, Jimmy Stewart reveals that he, in a bid to protect Selma, threw out her gun. He threw it in the river. Wait, the river or the bay? Who knows? Bay. I guess it's San Francisco. And then I think there's maybe one of your favorite scenes in the whole picture. Uh, Nick and Nora are in bed. Uh, and one of the more unrealistic touches, they're in separate beds because it was the 1930s. Uh, Nick wants to sleep and uh, Nora starts talking about uh, scrambled eggs. And he says, oh, do you want scrambled eggs? I'll be happy to make you scrambled eggs. And I feel that that's something I could see you doing. <laughs> what could you see me doing? Just uh, suddenly saying, oh, yeah, you know, you know, scrambled eggs sure are good, Kevin, aren't they? Yeah, there's one thing I really like. It's scrambled eggs. <laughs> and to say, do you want some scrambled eggs? I'll scramble you some eggs. <laughs> and she's also asking him, like, were there any pictures of you taken as a baby? <laughs> and he's like, I'll have some taken in the morning. He just wanted to <laughs> sleep. <laughs> it felt like one of those. It, it felt like a fun, inane kind of couple moment. It felt felt real. Yeah, you could imagine us in a situation like that. And you said the screenwriters who wrote this were married? Screenwriters who wrote this were married. Uh, Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett. Uh, they did a number of movie scripts. They also wrote the uh, play version of the Diary of Anna Frank. Oh, shit. Which you acted in in high school. Everything ties together in my life in yeah. one neat bow. Um, but anyways, back to this. They, uh, the, the Charleses are hanging out, um, and a rock gets thrown through their window. So somebody is not happy that they are looking into, uh, this, this case of Robert's murder. Well, we don't even know that because we don't know what the message on the rock is. (laughs) Well, what happens is, uh, well, (laughs) Nick yells through the broken window for the guy the rock thrower to shut the gate on his way out and then asta <laughs> uses this opportunity to steal the clue steal the note attached to this rock and he's running around and that it's just i just love this shit this is what this is what lanny would do our dog lanny nah she wouldn't she's a good girl but i <laughs> but i've definitely had dogs where they would totally do this and eat the clue and run around and you'd have to be like oh you know like bribing them to give it back yeah there's a scene where they're chasing the dog around the dog thinks they're playing and uh... and so they end up getting part of it but he he gets he eats some of the clue and and nora says look at him <laughs> later says look at him prancing around with a clue in him <laughs> 
I love how naughty Asta is. Like, in some ways, he's a very good boy, and then in some ways, he's so naughty. He's going through a lot. He is going through a lot, because next we see uh, Asta getting cucked again <laughs> by the Scottish Terrier. And then in, in his desperation to stop his wife from cheating on him, he pushes a lawnmower, like, lawn implement in front of the hole where the Scottish Terrier is coming in. So, poor Asta. <laughs> The infidelity subplot continues. (laughs) Asta, in my view, Asta, um, Nick is sort of like a, Nick and Nora are like the subversion of like the hard-boiled detective who's alone and unhappy because he's so dedicated to the mystery that it drives away everyone else because they have each other. Um, But Asta, in a way, is almost like the hard-boiled detective who whose marriage is now on the rocks because he's never he's too dedicated to the case, too dedicated to the detective life, and is never home to play with the kids or help out. And now this Scottish Terrier guy has stepped in to be <laughs> the father figure and the husband figure for his family, and he's uh he's gonna go drink at the bar or something. <laughs> so he in way Asta is almost like the opposite of Nick and Nora in this film. So then Lieutenant Abrams comes over and Asta's like growling at him. Asta's uh, Abrams keeps on telling him to behave himself. <laughs> have you ever had someone tell off your dog and you got offended? My dogs have always been ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? Yeah, I don't, well, I don't I don't know. I just, I just feel like if someone came in my house and was telling off my dog, I'd be like, "Fuck you!" even though even if the dog was like biting them in the face. <laughs> <laughs> So, so Abrams wants to go out and do some more investigating in the case. He wants Nick to go with him. Nora wants to join Nick. Nick does something a bit shitty. He, What does he do? So this is where these movies kind of do get prob- problematic for me. You know, in, t- in terms of a sexist thing, but also in terms of just a storytelling thing. Because the, the premier feature of these films is the relationship between Nick and Nora. And... Um, for the most part, this film seems to understand that, but in it, it, kind of like in a key callback from the first film, it drops the ball in a big way because you always have Nick when he goes off and does something dangerous or potentially dangerous. He like, you know, tricks Nora into like not going with him, basically. And in this case, he sort of just like, you know, locks her, you know, in, in part of the house. And one time he like tricked her into getting a taxi cab to go uptown to Grant's tomb. Um and it's like, you know, that that's where that's where sort of like the 1930s movie writing convention sort of kick in to the detriment of the film. Because it's like, we want to see Nick and Nora together, you know, the, the, the we want to see them go figure out, solve problems together. So to and ha- at this point of the movie, when they're separated, it becomes much, much, much less interesting. It goes downhill very quickly. Abrams and Nick do some detecting, and it was like, yawn. Yeah, and you're like, meh. And it's like, ugh. I mean, it's just sexist. It's like, oh, woman can't come with me because she might get hurt. It's like, fuck that. I don't know. Like, we don't stop. Like, it, it it's really to the detriment of the film. So Nick does do some sleuthing around this building where I guess Phil was seen or like oh, phil was the person we thought was polly's brother but it's actually her husband 
and I think he's dead, and I think there's a the janitor of the building is dead, and it's yeah, like, Phil gets strangled. The ja- the 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 janitor uh, is found by Nick when he's in a shootout with a dancer in the building's basement. Uh, what is this bank night? Nick says, "What is this bank night?" And we were like, "What the fuck does that mean?" Apparently, that was some sort of um lottery game franchise did it involve bodies being found during the great depression yeah it would, it would be like you'd murder a janitor and stuff him in a trunk and it would burst out and surprise people <laughs> that's bank night for you <laughs> i didn't even get the joke i love that one like weird like 1930s references that no one now is gonna understand and it's like <laughs> bank night and everyone back then was probably like oh, <laughs> oh that's rich oh, yeah it totally is like bank night <laughs> um but again, like, it's like we're kind of breezing through this part because it's like you're kind of having a hard time paying attention because, I mean, I'm going to say with, like, Thin Man, the mysteries are fun because of who's solving them. The mysteries aren't necessarily fun because they're interesting mysteries. It's usually just, like, an overstuffed cast of characters to keep you guessing. And then, like, kind of a, oh, a twist, it was this guy. You know, I they're not they're not that interesting. So Nick, they do some detecting and Nick says, oh, what we got to do now, let's have the big dinner party where we invite all the suspects in a room and we just say insinuating things to all of them and see what happens. And I was just thinking, I would, wouldn't you, this would be like the premier party of the fucking social calendar. I would love to get my ass hauled to one of these dues. I mean, <laughs> geez. I'd be like, I'd be like incriminating myself in a murder investigation to get invited to one of these things. Oh, it might not be a good idea. <laughs> Before what happened to McDonald's. <laughs> oh, man. You know you'd love to be at one of these things, though. Yes. You know, and then when, you know, you have different ingredients that you go into these dinner parties, as, we, as we've seen from the first film and then other films. There's always a grand dame who, oh, you know, I can't believe I was dragged here against my will. Like, you know, you, you'll, you'll hear from my lawyer about this. And then there's like some like kind of sleazy low life underworld guys who are like, what's it to you, copper? And like, and then there's always some high pitched, uh, squeaky voiced lady who's sassing the cops and is like, it's going to be a snow job on me, I guess, you know. And that's, of course, the, you know, Polly, the tutu girl whose husband got murdered. And, and so there's always like that. And then there's like some more reasonable people, some quiet people. There's a creepy guy who's obsessed with crime. I mean, it's got everyone. <laughs> Has the psychiatrist with the weird glasses. Yeah, he's just he's just in here because he has an interest in psychology and he looks kind of weird. He has the weird glasses. Yeah, I mean, that is suspicious. If you had weird glasses for a while, too. I would have hauled you to one of these things. You have no comment on that? I'm, I'm going to let that go. <laughs> I know that you fell in love with me when I had those allegedly weird glasses. Despite the glasses. <laughs> I think that I think that's what did the trick. You saw those glasses. They won you over. Kevin, those glasses look like y- you were some sort of cult leader in the 80s. Apparently that's what you'd like in a man. Because <laughs> you, you were drawn to me. Well, one thing that I was not drawn to and I was also kind of baffled and amused by is the fact that Dancer, the club manager, breaks out a an, kind of an Irish accent during this confrontation when he starts getting angry. And I don't know whether this was a character choice, an acting choice by the actor, or uh, they just forgot that he was supposed to be American. <laughs> it's also not a very good Irish accent. And, uh, you know, as an as an 
person of Irish descent. I was just baffled, but somewhat amused by this. Um, but of course, you know, you pack all these people into the apartment. There's always, they always scuffle. They always fight. They always scuffle. Yeah. There's always uh hijinks, you know, and of course you have, you know, Polly confuses illiterate and illegitimate. When somebody calls her illiterate, she says, my parents were married at town hall. <laughs> and Nick's going around. He's confronting everybody, hoping for somebody to make a slip. And then somebody does make a slip. And, and then, we figure out who the guilty party is. And it is Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Mr. Vertigo himself. Mr. America, the beloved figure, Jack Benny's neighbor. He's a killer. Mr. Rear Window himself. <laughs> Mr. It's a Wonderful Life. Mr. Smith goes to murder <laughs> as a viable option for dealing with problems. <laughs> um, and, you know, I love Jimmy Stewart here because he's overacting. He's getting all crazy. He's crazy Jimmy. <laughs> he's crazy. He's got all these vocal tics and his hair is getting all crazy. And he pulls a gun. <gasps> and who who saves the day? So, yeah, he pulls a gun on everybody. Also, maybe before we talk about who saves the day, let's talk about why he is doing this. Other than being crazy Jimmy. Because uh, he feels that when Selma left him for Robert, she wrecked his life. So now he wants revenge. He wanted to kill Robert and then also frame Selma so he could watch Selma go crazy and then be hanged by the authorities. And then the other two murders basically happened to cover up that plot. Um. So, so it sounds like Selma made the right decision when she dumped him. Right. It's like kind of framed like he was such a nice guy and she drove him crazy. But it's like, obviously, if this was inside of him, I mean, he's obviously a wealthy dude. He's Jimmy Stewart. He could have just been like, well, I'll just marry someone else. I'll, you know, I'll find somebody else. But instead, he like went nuts and plotted this like years long revenge scheme. So like Robert was a douchebag, but she definitely made the right mm-hmm. call. And of course, there is one funny line from Anne Catherine where she like looks at Selma and she's like, you certainly can pick him. <laughs> Who saves the day when Jimmy pulls the gun? It was the co-owner of the Chinese restaurant, who is the man of Chinese descent. And he, uh, I forget his name, but he throws his hat at Jimmy Stewart. And that gives Nick the opening to jump in and grab Jimmy Stewart. And then Jimmy Stewart gets hauled away, screaming, overacting all the way to, uh, you know, to potentially go to like a mental asylum, I imagine. Because basically everyone agrees that he's crazy. But um, so he has a moment of heroism. Let me get his name. I want to. I want to be respectful to this uh, character. Um, that was his, his, that guy's name was. Um, Mr. Lum Key, and he was only weirdly enough. This was his first film role. It looks like, and he only has, uh. Three other credits to his name. Uh, what were those pictures? The Good Earth, Think Fast, Mr. Moto, and Barricade. Oh, my God. What? IMDb Trivia says that according to the 19, a 1937 edition of the Saratogan, uh, Law was actually a millionaire reporter who... A millionaire reporter? Yeah. <sighs> 
what I guess maybe that used to be a thing. He was a millionaire who worked as a reporter. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm 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 like blind. He was a millionaire importer. He imported okay. goods. That makes a lot more sense. <laughs> I was like a millionaire <laughs> reporter. My hero. Um from San Francisco, he would travel down to Hollywood to act in movies just for fun. And uh, and he'd end up spending more on, like, transportation than the roles actually paid. Isn't that crazy? Jesus. Good for him. That's awesome. His name was William Law. Sounds like an interesting fellow. <coughs> so uh, so he ends up saving the day. So, yeah, it is kind of a hero- heroic portrayal of, um, you know a character of Asian descent in this, in this film, which is cool. Even though some of the stereotypical aspects, you know, were a little bit troubling, but you know, all's well that ends well. In this well it case. hasn't quite ended yet. How's this picture end? Well, I'm getting to that, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know. Give me the deets. So Selma, after being, you know, so hurt by Jimmy Stewart's actions um and and also you know probably hurt by her own tendency to overact <laughs> hops on a train with Nick and Nora they're just getting out of town she's going to go on a trip abroad and they're you know Nick and Nora are just going to go go off and uh you know she finally leaves and Nick is really thrilled because he and Nora are finally alone or are they oh Asta's there maybe Someone else too. Oh, like who? Who else could possibly be there? Well, Nora is knitting a little baby sock. What? She's gonna have a baby. Aww. And she's like, "You call yourself a detective to Nick," and he's shocked. <laughs> and Asta is very happy. But you think Asta is worried because his happy home got broken up when his wife started having babies. <laughs> It revealed things that Asta would have preferred not to know. <laughs> Poor Asta. He's been so broken by this experience. And But he does howl in celebration of the happy news. So what did you think of After the Thin Man? Does it hold up as your favorite Thin Man installment? Yeah, I, I love the characters. I think this is the one that has the combination of the best writing when it's still fresh with the biggest amount of Nick and Nora content. Their chemistry is incredible. The relationship between them is incredible. Uh, he respects her. She loves and adores him. Uh, he loves her. They're great. It's a very entertaining picture, even though some of the mystery uh, elements were a bit dull. And it also has smoke dreams. <laughs> Here by the campfire. <laughs> I love this movie. And I love the whole Thin Men franchise, even the not-so-good ones. Um, I I would say, to sum it up for me, anything else you wanted to say? I'm ready for your summary, your All unvarnished right. take. I'll do it. Thanks to the crackling chemistry and fun banter between Myrna Loy and William Powell, after the Thin Men's charm is never spread too thin. Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore to underscore me underscore. And at mystery to me podcast on Facebook and Instagram. 
And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T-O. Thanks Thanks so so much much for listening. listening.